So listen, welcome to this event, Who Needs Human Rights? It's a real pleasure to host this discussion. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas. Uh, the uh, focus of tonight's discussion is to talk about the issue that is raised by Luke Gittos, who is the author of this book, uh, Human Rights Illusory Freedoms. Um, it came out in um, February 2019. Uh, it's a fantastic book, but my God, the world has changed since then, Luke. So I'm going to be asking you how the changes in the world might help you reflect on what you've written. Luke is a uh, solicitor. He's a practicing criminal lawyer. Uh, he's the legal editor of the online magazine Spiked. He regularly appears on the media on civil liberties and the law. And his other book, Why Rape Culture is a Dangerous Myth, which came out in 2015, is still one of my go-to books uh, on all issues in relation to the law and the misuse of law uh, on emotive subjects. But you can see from that title that Luke is not frightened of controversy. Uh, Luke also often speaks, produces, shares events for the Academy of Ideas, at, for example, our annual Battle of Ideas Festival. More about that later. I'm going to frame out the discussion a little bit, but some housekeeping. I do understand that you are all by now um, well accustomed to Zoom, but just a couple of points. Um, the format is that uh, I'll introduce uh, uh, Luke and the discussion. I'll then ask him a few questions. But the main thing is that I'm going to then go out to the audience and I really am keen to gather as many thoughts as possible from you in the audience. That's the whole point of Academy of Ideas events. I'll take four or five people at once, then come back to Luke and so on and so forth. In order to speak, you either put your uh, hover over the participants button at the bottom, and that will take you to uh, a place where you will see a raised hand and you can do it that way. Or on some people's version of Zoom, there's a reactions button and that's a similar uh, way that you can uh, get to speak. There's also a chat fun function, and I know that a lot of people like chatting on that, so you can raise questions there. I have to encourage you not to get completely consumed by the online chat, though, because there's real live chat going on here. And behind the scenes, I've got Ella Whelan, who is ensuring that I don't make a mess of everything because technically I'm incompetent. Uh, another few things to say, the Academy of Ideas, as people may know, has not furloughed at all, but we kept going during the uh, pandemic and over the last year. This is a free event, but you can imagine what it's like. We're a small organisation. We're constantly broke. We kept going and didn't furlough people. We thought of all the times in the world that you needed to carry on having debates and public discussions, it was during a time when we were locked down, locked up effectively. So I know that you might all be broke too, but if there's any of you who've got any spare savings from lockdown, and we'd really appreciate your support, either just a one-off donation for tonight, or you should join us and become a, 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 an associate of the Academy of Ideas and give us a regular amount of money. And, and then just uh, finally on the housekeeping bits, dates for your diary, or we're actually going live with our first Battle of Ideas event on July the 17th at the University of Buckingham with a special day on education and freedom. So put that in your diary, come along. And then also the, 7th, the 9th and the 10th of October, that weekend is when we're gonna do a people's takeover of Westminster. Big Westminster venue, 100 panel debates over one weekend, face to face, do come along, put that date in your diary. Freedom and free speech are very much at the core of the Academy of Ideas work. And one of our lockdown initiatives has been uh, Letters on Liberty, 
a series of pamphlets. These are some of them. Here, specially designed short pamphlets on different aspects of freedom. You can order those pamphlets or, or get a subscription to them. But what they're all about is realizing that you can't take freedom for granted, that you have to make the case for freedom in each generation on different topics. And whether that's that freedom of conscience, whether that's freedom in the arts, whether that's whether uh, environmentalism a challenge to our freedom, all of these different topics. The idea is we've got these pamphlets that you buy, you read, you give to your mates, you argue over in the pub when the pub's open. And those challenges of making a new case for freedom is exactly what I think Luke tries to do and what the issue that we're going to talk about tonight. We think we know what human rights debates are all around about, but do we? And having read Luke's book, I think it's a bit different than I thought. But just to say, some of you might know I was involved in Brexit and I was uh, quite vocal on leaving the European Union. And one of the things that got muddled up was that a lot of people who wanted to leave the European Union then said that they were keen to get away from the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And people have argued to repeal the Human Rights Act at home as though it's somehow kind of associated with the EU. And in fact, the Tories have been promising to repeal the Human Rights Act uh, uh, that the, the Labour Party brought in for some time. Yes, those very same campaigners I've noticed, the very same people who have been arguing against the, the European Court of Human Rights, in the last year, particularly in the last six months, have started saying we need to take this to the European Court of Human Rights, usually about lockdown. In fact, I've found that a lot of people who were formerly against human rights law are now regularly citing it. They're basically saying we've had all these illiberal state attacks, we need to go to the law courts. Everybody cites section five uh, of the human rights law and says that means that we're being unlawfully detained, uh, at the people in care homes and so on. So there's been a real turnaround. And I remember in 2016 when the director of Liberty said that the protection of the human rights act would be the struggle of our generation. And various people I knew sort of thought this was hilarious and thought, well, you know, bring it on. And those very people who were against Liberty only last weekend, the group of them were citing liberty and saying how important it was that we strengthened up and toughened up human rights legislation. So whatever else has happened, something has changed. And I suppose I want to talk to Luke and find out whether he thinks that changes make any difference to what he wrote in his book. But also, is there anything really that offensive about the Human Rights Bill, Human Rights Act, human rights as a notion of universally being treated fairly? So Luke, why don't you kick us off? To answer your question, Claire, the answer is yes, there is still something very wrong and offensive about human rights. But you're right also that human rights is one of the most uh, abused political terms in our lexicon. I would argue one of the most abused and used uh, historical terms in all of political history, even though it's been around for, for longer than many of the others. A quick Google search, a Google News search today with the words human rights reveals the span of uh, human rights issues that we have today. Apparently, uh, Spanish expats facing tax discrimination may have a claim in, under human rights law. Uh, a coalition of environmental groups are demanding the right to a health and safety environment is enshrined in Scottish law in advance of the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Uh, the co a, a co that coalition saying we're now at a tipping point when, again, our humanity is in jeopardy because of the environmental damage. 
And in the UK, uh, the UK government is being taken to court now by three young people who claim their human rights are being breached by the government's failure to act decisively on the climate change crisis. Um, we also see that President Joe Biden has now uh, recommitted the United States to the UN Human Rights Council, a UN Human Rights Council that includes uh, China uh, and Saudi Arabia, who we'll come back to in a moment. Uh, but the, the Defence Secretary saying that this was part of his administration's commitment to pursuing a foreign policy centred on democracy, human rights and equality. Uh, and for me, that really gave, gave a signal that the Biden uh, administration is intent on re a return to the sort of liberal interventionist model of foreign policy, which for all his faults, Trump had happily moved away from. So we see that um, one thing that hasn't changed from the days of the book is that human rights seem to get everywhere. They're a guiding force behind foreign policy and may well in, in the short term future or medium term future, translate into some quite damaging interventions, I would uh, predict on behalf of the, uh, it's obviously too early to say, but one of the major criticisms of human rights in the past, some of the major writers on human rights have cited its role in justifying liberal interventionism. And certainly the language coming out of the States at the moment seems to indicate that that's the turn that the Biden administration is taking. So on the one hand, human rights are uh, uh, everywhere, are proliferating everywhere, more talk of rights than ever before. But on the other hand, uh, human rights are nowhere, particularly in our discussion around the pandemic and the lockdown. It's true that some of our best, uh, the best critics of the lockdown have been those people calling themselves human rights lawyers. I'm thinking of people like Adam Wagner and Suki Carlo, who I think have done, though, sorry, latterly the uh, director of Big Brother Watch, formerly a uh, prolific uh, human rights commentator and, uh, and lawyer himself. Uh, but both of whom have, have been very vocal and, and, and diligent in, in tracking the lockdown and the way the lockdown laws are made. And I think that's been extremely important work. But human rights laws have been almost entirely absent around our debate on the lockdown. Uh, the one uh, judicial review uh, brought on the human rights grounds by Simon Dolan um, was roundly rejected by the High Court who found that the, the largest and most significant withdrawal of our civil liberties for decades was entirely in accordance with human rights law. And uh, they went through uh, each article by article and explained how the greatest withdrawal of civil liberty was perfectly compliant with our current human rights framework. <clears throat> so what's, so just to answer Claire's question, what's wrong with human rights? Well, the difference, I think what we need to emphasize is the huge difference between human rights uh, with what, the way Stephen Hopgood, the academic from KCL describes it, is the difference between human rights with a capital R and human rights with a small r. Human rights with a capital R being the institutions, laws, courts, tribunals that exist across the world that purport to defend human rights and do very specific work under those auspices. And small HR human rights being the kind of idea, the moral principles that we might want to hold um, about how we make law. And I think what Claire is hinting at is that we might well want to retain some moral principles about the way we make our laws. We may well, for example, believe that executing people is always wrong and will never be, tr never be right. I think that's an interesting moral question. And I think that there is an argument to say that we should, as a democratic community, formulate some moral principles to guide the way that we legislate. However, what we have in terms of capital HR 
human rights at the moment, the human rights laws, courts, etc., I would argue play an increasingly destructive role uh, in the modern world. It's true, and the book makes this point, that the idea of human rights, small HR human rights, have always been co-opted by people with their own agenda. Uh, uh, as uh, people like Kostas Duzanis uh, has written, have written about extensively, the, the use of human rights to justify interventions in places like Libya and Iraq, uh, that's probably old news to all of you now. Um, but the, the, the book argues, echoing an argument made elsewhere, that human rights, that the human rights rhetoric provided the West in the aftermath of the Second World War with a sort of unifying moral language to provide themselves with coherence against the communist threat from the East. So it allowed them to use the language of freedom to self-define and to uh, give themselves moral authority in the aftermath uh, of the Second World War and into the Cold War. And I think in some respects today, human rights are still used by people on the left and the right to provide themselves with the moral language to advance agendas which have very little to do often with freedom or civil liberties. Um, and I think the, the way, the, what I wanted to emphasize this evening, and, it's a, and I think Claire is right, the world's completely different to when the book was written. And just looking at this issue again in the last few weeks, I think what we're going to continue seeing and the most destructive form of uh, the, uh, and the most destructive role that human rights will continue to play is what I've come to view as sort of human rights identitarianism. So the meeting of human rights with the identitarianist movement. And this has some very, very frightening consequences, I think. So I think it started to go, uh, this, this sort of moment started to emerge in Canada, actually, with firstly with the case of Jessica Yaniv, who I've spoken about before when I've discussed this publicly, but it really was a shocking example for those who don't know about it. Uh, Jessica Yaniv was a transgender woman who sued uh, immigrant workers in Canada for their temerity for, to refuse to shave part of Jessica's body on the grounds that they couldn't touch um, a biological man. And Jessica Yaniv's case was that she was being unlawfully discriminated against on human rights grounds. Now, thankfully, she eventually lost that case but the reform that has occurred in Canada around human rights has directly uh, run counter to people's freedom. Human rights in Canada are used as a means of limiting uh, people's free choice and freedom of speech. So reform around human rights, particularly transgender human rights, were the basis of criminalizing the use of the wrong pronoun. Uh, and we've had the first conviction in Canada of a father uh, who refused to refer to uh, their child by the correct pronoun. One example of um, uh, uh, how human rights uh, are, are, are weaponized, um, in, in, and a number of different examples are arising out of Canada at the moment, where effectively, on a base on a human rights justification, uh, people's freedom are actually being limited rather than expanded. And you see this here too with the case of Maya Forrester, which is probably the most up to date uh, example. Uh, she lost, uh, Maya lost her job after tweeting about the belief that there was only two genders. And the judge in the employment tribunal considering her case said that uh, her view that there was only two genders was incompatible with human dignity and the fundamental rights of others. So the judge in the employment tribunal considered that an opinion was in, in contradiction to others' uh, fundamental rights. A human rights argument was used to effectively crush uh, Maya Forrester's right to uh, self-express. 
whatever you think of Forrester's point of view on uh, whether or not there are two or three genders or more genders, uh, whatever you view of that point, the judgment um, suggests that opinions can undermine, uh, that the, the opinions can actually uh, be a force of undermining people's rights and show, I think, the, the authoritarian potential of some human rights movements. But it's not just um, gender where this, uh, where human rights play, I think, a destructive role and actually uh, uh, play a role in limiting freedom. We've seen in 2018, the European Court uh, upholding an, an Austrian woman's conviction for mocking Mohammed. They slightly rolled, um, you know, saying that this was, it was perfectly legitimate. The woman's words were blasphemous and it was perfectly legitimate to punish her criminally for that. Uh, two years later, in 2020, the European Court did uh, strike what, what human rights advocates seriously called a blow for freedom of expression by refusing to mandate the Azerbaijani, uh, an Azerbaijani conviction for uh, insulting Mohammed. But they said that the words used by the journalist in that case were sufficiently respectful of Islam. And so uh, was, that, was, that was legitimate, that was perfectly okay. So once again, you have the European court playing this extraordinary role in legitimizing censorship, particularly when it comes to insulting uh, religion. And what, what I think, and I think that there are lots of other examples that we can come back to. And um, most recently, the BLM movement has been given a, a, human, rights, uh, uh, a human rights inquiry through, the, through parliament the reason they're investigating this is on a human rights, uh, investigating the issues raised by BLM is because they see it as part of their human rights agenda. So for all the, of this government's putting down of, of human rights and, and, and all, of all the critiques of human rights, they're still justifying political projects on the basis of human rights at the same time. I think what we're seeing and one development since the book is that the is a significant change, at least in the historical understanding of human rights. I think human rights once aspired to create universal human standards for treating people, the idea being that there are certain limits beyond which the state should not tread uh, and, uh, and that that line should be defended. But nowadays, I think they're more often used, the language of rights, and particularly of human rights, are more often used to insist on individuals, on standards for treating individuals. So, it has a far greater connection to identity than it did in the past. Human rights are now my right to be seen and considered in a particular way. And once this connection is made, actually human rights can become the means of enforcing identity politics with the force of the state. And I think we're starting to see that around the discussion in gender, but I think we're gonna see it more and more um, and I think that the, weapon, the weaponization of human rights in that way is only going to um, increase because I think that connection allows for uh, the notion of rights to be co-opted by um, an identitarian agenda. Okay, Luke, can I, can I just yeah, of course. Up at this point? Sorry, say that again. Yeah, of course. I've got a bit more, uh, but um, please feel free. I wanted to mention China and, and, and let, that's... Let me come back to that. Let me come back yeah. because you, you, you've... Well, first of all, because I want to take a step back, but I think that was a really useful update. And, I, and the identity politics, I, I was going to ask you about it, but you've, you've covered it. Or, and I hope that you actually write that up for us as a letter on liberty, because that would be a really useful thing for us all to understand. But I wanted to reflect on one thing. You know, it's kind of 
one of the things which I'd never really understood because I remember um, in 2009, there was this thing, for those of you who don't remember, called the Convention on Modern Liberties, uh, which was organised by a guy called Henry Porter, who I used to be friends with, but we fell out over Brexit, but that's neither here nor there. And the, they had this big Convention on Liberty, and it was, it was all about kind of the incredible draconian measures that have been brought, under, brought through under Labour, uh, under Blair's new Labour. And they were all kind of Labour, they were all Labour voting people who organised this. Um, I remember it as well, it, it coincided with David Cameron talking about how he's going to have to have a great repeal act to get rid of the kind of authoritarianism of the Blair years. And, you know, you, you've got to, you can't underestimate how many laws they brought in under Labour. But the thing that was most extraordinary was they brought in all these completely authoritarian laws that everybody kind of was up in arms about at the end of Blair's time. At the same time, they also brought in the Human Rights Act. So what I, what I wanted to kind of get you to just expand a little, because I think this is what we've seen in lockdown more recently, is you can have a Human Rights Act. And if the Human Rights Act was the thing which was going to stop you having all these authoritarian laws, I might be keen. But in view of the fact that people who brought it in also were responsible for, I think, 4,300 new criminal offences, 50 criminal justice bills, ASBOs, you know, every kind of surveillance you could think of. It seems to me that the Human Rights Act did nothing to protect what popularly people might think as human rights. Is that a fair reading? I think it's a very fair reading. Uh, so um, an academic I mentioned earlier, I hate to keep mentioning academics, it's very boring, but uh, Keith Ewing mentions that, you know, he, he sees this the Human Rights Act as a, as a means of justifying the kind of authoritarian laws that were introduced under New Labour. I probably wouldn't put it that highly, but I think it's good that the Human Rights Act doesn't prevent the passage of authoritarian laws, actually. I think that would be, um, that would be dangerous because I think it would increase the power of the judiciary to intervene in Parliament's power to make law. And I think that would undermine the sovereignty of Parliament in quite a significant way. What you could look at, um, and, and one of the suggestions that was mooted more recently by the Conservative government is something close to the American um, declaration or the or the or, or uh, the, the the amendments and and then what they do is say that no law will ever be made that will restrict uh, free expression for example or no law will ever be made that will restrict particular rights so the structure of the American system is different to ours and that the American system actually allows the, the the judiciary to strike down laws that go against human rights or the, the, what they perceive to be human rights um, because it conflicts with the constitution. Uh, we don't have a constitution, we have an unwritten constitution here. The question, I mean, would it be a good thing if we passed a, a constitution saying, uh, well, we need to make sure we don't pass any law which infringes free speech? I think the answer has to be no, because I think we'd end up with a system close to America where judges would be deciding whether a piece of parliamentary law is legitimate, and that's quite worrying. Uh, but I don't know whether that answers your question, but... Uh, well, I mean, it kind of gets there, doesn't it? I mean, I, I suppose one of the things that we have to kind of query, or I have to push you on, is what's wrong with the judiciary? Because one of the things which, you know, I, maybe it's who I hang out with, but, you know, I remember when the Supreme Court, you know, in 2016, decided that um, uh, the Prime Minister Theresa May needed to have a parliamentary vote to trigger Article, uh, trigger article 50. And the Daily Mail had that headline, Enemy of the People, the infamous headline with all those judges. 
And there was kind of two things that, I mean, that pink, this caused absolute outrage, if you remember, but there was two things. They also went through all the kind of the politics of the judges. And it, and it seemed to me to completely miss the point because I, and I think you, you can maybe do a bit of myth busting here, but the, the problem it seems to me is not that the judges are all kind of politically liberal or I don't agree with them, but the politicized nature of the judiciary is problematic or is that overstated? I mean, how do you kind of deal with that? Because one of the things that's great that you do in the book is look at the origins of, of human rights in terms of it coming out of a kind of, I mean, church was one of them, conservatives, you've mentioned it, in, in, in after the Second World War, really being worried about democracy. So it seems trying to untangle that bit is quite difficult because most people I know don't trust politicians, but despite that Daily Mail front cover, actually somehow imagine the law courts and the judiciary are objective. Mm. They're above all that nasty business of politicking that we're seeing at today's local elections. You can go to them and get a ruling. Whereas if you go to a politician, God knows what will influence them. It might be ideas or something. So how do we untangle all that? I think the important start, starting point is to recognize something that you hinted at, which is the real threat to our freedom as it is today comes from parliamentary law. That's what we've seen in uh, the lockdown and also in the policing bill, which we might come on to talk about. You know, the big threats are not coming from the judiciary, but they're coming from our MPs and they're coming from our governments. And um, the reason why you, you ought not to use the judiciary in order to prevent that is because fundamentally it undermines the role in, of the demos of the public in, in shaping the law. You know, the, the law ideally, and it's a long way from this, but for all different reasons, but Ideally, the law should be a reflection of the morality and uh, political inclinations of the public. If it's not that, then it's uh, sort of designed by expertise. Um, uh, it's designed by expertise and may be subject to all sorts of uh, agendas and whims, which we as the voting public might not be happy with. The point of, you know, the reason why Parliament makes law in the way that it does is so that we retain some control over how law is made. <clears throat> the point that I make in the book is that um, the, the, the role of the judiciary uh, limits the public's uh, ability, uh, I think, or, uh, well, I'm, I want to be a bit more careful about this, actually, um, because I do, I agree with this, with the tenet of your question, which is, I think the judiciary receive an unfair um, rap from a lot of, uh, the, uh, of the, particularly the right wing media who seek to blame all political problems on the dysfunctions of the judiciary or of the legal system. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of political problems today, such, you know, including the asylum and immigration issues that are blamed on the judiciary and lawyers bringing cases and that sort of thing. Uh, and I don't think that's right. Um, but I do think in order to fix the political problems and the problems we have with freedom today, we must retain power to shape the law. And we can only do that by ensuring that Parliament has the ability to make those laws in the freest way possible. But that also makes it difficult because it means that we in the public have to put pressure on the on parliament and on our representatives to repeal laws, which is not something they're fond of doing ever, uh, and is uh, is quite difficult to make that case if you haven't got a general public who are vehement in favour of freedom. And we can come to talk about this and the, the kind of polling that came out during the lockdown. I don't know if I was the only one who was slightly dispirited with the almost unanimous support that the 
that the government seems to be supporting. And I know there's a lot of complications around that, but I also don't think we can underestimate the legitimating force that that, that polling had on the on, on the prolongation of the lockdown. I think I think that that's it's true that uh, the public and their wishes uh, need to shape the, the 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 influence of the law and the creation of the law. Um, but I think at the moment we don't have a public, uh, a, 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 we don't have a democratic culture where freedom is, is taken particularly seriously. And that's, if the book was trying to do anything, it was trying to say that that's our real problem yeah. rather than the Human Rights Act. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's very important. I mean, one, one of the things you point out is that despite me saying about that, that uh, you know, um, the idea that the coalition government with Cameron and uh, Clegg was going to come in and kind of tear up all these draconian laws within about three seconds they'd given up on it but why because of terrorism and the, the thing that really strikes me about the lockdown is that fear and and the, the kind of keeping people safe appears to conflict all the time with this idea of liberty and that liberty uh, becomes we, we we end up with only a rhetorical commitment to liberty once people are frightened for whatever reasons and so that was that's kind of an interesting you know I mean god knows that's the challenge of our time isn't it but what what, what I suppose and this can be something which people can talk about um, themselves is but it, one of the things that I think you're very convincing on is the idea that as political institutions have become weaker as we've got less faith in each other in democracy and winning arguments with each other we turn to the judiciary I mean, it's not kind of not their fault anyway i mean they like it if they're lawyers i mean they like nothing more but they start to be a substitute for us and 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 i wanted you to just and just just to kind of quote that Durante, who you quote from the first Hague conference because i just think it's you know that they were this is the first human rights conference where they were united in their belief that a democracy in which tyranny of the majority held sway was little better than a dictatorship. I mean, it was an explicitly anti-democratic movement. I think people have got to understand that's where it came from. It was a lack of trust in ordinary people. But then on the other hand, how do we deal with things like free speech? So I, I, want, I want to concentrate a little bit on free speech. We at the moment are in a situation where there is about to be a bill that will go through parliament, for example, it will almost make it illegal to breach academic freedom. And I'm in a real quandary because some of you might know I'm in the House of Lords and I'm going to have to decide what to do about this bill. I'm fed up of attacks on free speech, but is it the law that we should be looking to to protect people? But similarly, people will quote Article 10 all the time and say, look, this guarantees free speech or we need a Bill of Rights that gives us free speech in the law. But is that as you've hinted at yourself, is that actually any guarantee of free speech at all? Seems to me that all the exemptions are you can have free speech except, but could you just uh, riff on that whole issue of, can we guarantee free speech in the law? Would that guarantee it? Because it's actually in human rights convention uh, uh, law. We've got article 10 and yet we haven't got free speech. We've got less of it than ever before. Yeah, I mean, article 10, the structure of article 10 is actually to say you have free speech um, but not in these circumstances, and lists the circumstances, and there's a lot of them. So you could argue that Article 10 is, has absolutely zero role in protecting what we might think of as free speech, which is a, a, a culture where people can speak unencumbered by law and unencumbered by 
um, only safe in the most narrow circumstances. Um, you know, it's, it's anything but a protection for free speech. It's, if anything, I think Article 10 is the strongest example of how human rights are used to legitimate the undermining of those freedoms. And we, we, the, the kind of censorship cases are a good illustration of that. Um, so, I mean, the, so no, the, the, the Article 10 is not going to defend free speech. What the government is, is currently looking at um, is a kind of mechanism through which, as I understand the proposals, there would be some kind of body through which people would have legal, either legal or regulatory recourse to uh, where, where they, they feel as academic freedom has been undermined. The problem with that is that one, it does, not, it does nothing to fix the underlying culture that I've just, I've talked about, you know, it does nothing to make people want to be free. And I think that's a really important point. Um, you have to make people want to live in a free way, otherwise, repealing all the laws won't make any difference if people aren't exercising um, their freedom in a meaningful way. And on campus, I think the bigger problem is not um, just uh, the, the kind of culture of explicit cancellation. It's not just the fact of the cancellations that happen or the withdrawal of invitations to particular people. I think it's a culture where people feel as though they can't speak honestly and and express their opinions and be collegiate with people who share, who have different opinions to them and who can't speak about their opinions without fear of being cast out of, of, of professional society. And that's the real problem that is not gonna be fixed by a law. You know, you can't force people to treat people respectfully when they exercise their freedom. You can't force, you can't sue people to do that either. You know, all that you will do is create a punishment, some form of punishment for the people who do it. And the culture remains. And if anything, I think those, the kind of movement towards, I was like you, Claire, quite open to, so I was glad that the government was at least putting this issue on the table. But I think the form that it's taken actually risks alienating an awful lot more people against the idea of academic freedom and free speech. And I think there is some justification. I can understand why a lot of people see this as a sort of right-wing issue. I can get that idea and that's a real shame if it's seen in those terms. And I don't think it will do much to win the argument because I think the more that this is argued for on a, um, as, as what we might call part of the culture war, where this issue is thrown around between left and right and argued over um, and the left see it as a weapon and the right see it as, you know, a strike back against wokedom or whatever, the more that, that the issue gets tied up in that kind of discussion, I think the less actual freedom we're going to achieve, the less respectful we're going to be of one another, the less open we're going to be with one another. Uh, and I think the law will only compound that, it will only make that worse. I mean, I, I, can, I can understand the temptation and I have, I'm unresolved, but a little, but um, I, again, you know, in that, in that early days of, of, of setting up, um, uh, the human rights body uh, in that first conference where they talk about protecting democracy from itself. That really resonated with me because I, I can see that there's a growing anti-democratic mood at the moment that just doesn't trust people. And so you have to have laws and regulations and rules. And that's where it seems to me human rights fit in, which is people don't believe that you can win the arguments with other people. And this could be, I mean, you know, we've all heard it, you know, people are a bit skeptical about some of the more draconian lockdown measures. And I don't really want to kind of get into whether that's good or bad, but no, whether we like it or not, 
lockdown leg COVID legislation has been utterly illiberal. I mean, incredibly. And and anyone who's queried it has been called a COVID denier. But on the and you know treated incredibly badly and demonised. But on the other hand, people who are a bit lockdown sceptical will say that anyone who goes along with this, even if they were going along with it for social solidarity, they're called sheeple, stupid people wearing these masks. Why isn't everyone rebelling? You know, and then they are the ones who are often saying we need laws, we need rules. We, you know, we want to sue you under the Human Rights Act for our freedom. And you think, I think this slightly misses the freedom point there. Um, because there's an anti-democratic aspect to both sides, it seems to me, of this argument, and, I, and, it's, and, it, and it's very uncomfortable, and it avoids the hard work. I mean, it's hard work winning the arguments for freedom and free speech, so I can see the temptation, but I just don't think it works. That's the point that you've emphasised. Okay, because I, because I, I cut you off uh, before, uh, let's just let's just think about uh, the international things, and you were going to talk about China, so maybe you would talk about that, but one of the issues, one of the the, the ways that we often hear human rights in popular discussion is, and I hear it all the time in the House of Lords, is they say this country is in breach of human rights rules, or you know, they're, they're it's that people are always breaking human rights rules, you know, Syria, Turkey, that's a kind of way that you show your moral superiority, and it's used as a way of attacking people. Obviously, when you hear some of the grotesque things that are going on in places like Turkey, you know, you do want to you do want to say, well, what's wrong with saying that? But do you want to kind of just look at the way it's used internationally? Because it is inter an interesting and slightly different point, I think. Yeah, so it's obviously an incredibly complex question as to how, and it has a long history, and there are um, people who devote their careers to studying this question as to how human rights work in the, in the international relations sphere. Um, so I'll make a modest contribution in this regard. Um, the... the the first thing I would say is that often human rights are used and the idea of breaching human rights rules. Uh, what I argue in the book is that that is often used as a way of um, firstly radically simplifying and, uh, and, and, and is often quite a reductionist approach to understanding what is going on. And that was actually illustrated in the, the, the example I use in the book is of the Syrian conflict where, uh, you know, what was very clear was that the human rights organizations were using allegations of human rights violations uh, in quite a selective way. So we'd often uh, highlight the uh, human rights violations by uh, a particular side of the conflict um, where it was pretty clear that what was going on was absolutely appalling on all sides. And I think you see that actually time and time again, particularly um, the other example I would cite is the intervention in Kosovo, which is sort of the, some people think is the kind of birth of the humanitarian intervention moment where, you know, apparent human rights violations by the Serbian army was used as a justification for military action. Um, as I say, there's books on this that you, for, and, and I can't go into uh, too much detail, uh, but the reality is that human rights are often used as a way of presenting a conflict in a particular way which itself has its own agenda and, and itself has its own uh, real political purpose, which is completely divorced from concerns regarding human rights. And I think you see that uh, in other international uh, examples as well. Um, quite often in the context of Russia, you know, I've used the, exa I used the example of uh, some very, very, the book includes some 
examples of very, very clumsy interventions by the European Convention of, Court of, of Human Rights against Russia, intervening in ways which are actually quite extraordinary, you know, being very explicit in their criticism of the way that the Russians have handled a particular case in a way that the European Court would never do in the context of countries in Western Europe. And it's very, very clear that Russia is often held to, to different standards uh, than, than, the rest of the, than the rest of Europe. So to, 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 some, to, to sort of try and drill this down, I think the, the first way that human rights tend to be packaged and used on the international stage is uh, to, to justify uh, interventionism and to justify uh, uh, sort of transnational uh, government as well. Um, and I think it also plays a role in shaping our understanding of particular conflicts, which can often be uh, destructive rather than constructive. Um, but, but, but as I say, that there's, there's literature written about the role of human rights NGOs, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, and the, the, the way that, uh, for example, foreign aid can often be dependent upon adhering to particular human rights standards which itself creates some real difficulties and moral complexities on the ground, which um, are not always good and not always productive. Um, but that's a whole other area. Um, I hope that's a satisfactory answer to the question. No, but I mean, I, I think I'm coming out to the audience now, so just kind of get up, start putting your hands up everyone. But um, I think the thing is, is that some of those international NGOs, by the way, are the people who have for example, as you started off in your talk, talking about the identity politics, groups like Amnesty International lecture other people about human rights, you know, say you're not adhering to human rights. And then they themselves have decided that anybody who says that uh, a, a, um, defines as two different sexes and doesn't go along with our gender idea or self-ID or in breach of human rights, you think, well, go, I mean, what, in no disrespect, but you know, lecturing people in Syria isn't going to get as far. And at the same time, sometimes the universalizing standard, as you said, you say, can backfire. So you've got the PKK who fought ISIS, a prescribed organization like ISIS. You know, they don't live up to some human rights. Or human rights don't do anything to stop those kind of madnesses. So there's there's a fair, you know, I think there's like loads to unpick there, but it's it, it's pretty obvious that it's not a straightforward universal standard we can all live up to and all is a happy in the garden. I think that's the no, point. Anything but, I would say. I think yeah. that's yeah. Okay, let's see what the audience thinks. Uh, no, no, no prescription on what anyone says. You can talk about what you want. And I'm going to start off with Manly. It's Martin. Uh, just a few okay. things, really. The, the, start of the, the title of the discussion is Who Needs Human Rights? I'll tell you who's, who needs human rights. Lawyers, NGOs, police officers, council boards, employers, trade unions, magistrates, they need law because they work in it. I've been in law for 20 years. I'm calling from West Midlands, Birmingham. Around here, we don't follow the law, really. It's a big disconnect. So people worry about freedom, laws, um, bills of rights. Let me tell you, all through COVID, we've been raving, organising gatherings. We don't we don't business with law. We do our own thing. What I would say to you is two points. One, human rights are about extending the, the intervention of the state in your life, controlling you. Real rights don't come from a court. They don't come from law or the House of Lords or these bills. They come from people doing things. And when they're stopped from doing things, then they protest. That's, that's one point. Every right that I am aware of currently, people are campaigning for, is regressive. Rights for whales, the environment or fish, these things 
that they're, they're, they're special pleading for protection and always, always an extension of the state intervening. I work in, I do a number of jobs in law. One is advising a major retailer. Every day I hear about consumer rights, breach of data rights. These aren't real things like freedom of speech or freedom of association. These are special pleading from interest groups who had the money to go to court. If I have a dispute with my neighbour, I'll resolve that myself between us. If it's not resolved, it goes to law. It can get resolved, but who has the most resources gets the agreement. So all I'm saying is there's a big disconnect between a discussion about rights and the Bill of Rights and these formal things uh, and, the, and the real world and how life is and how you resolve things collectively through community. The second point to make to Luke is you mentioned certain human rights might be really important, like um, having no capital punishment as an example of maybe a possible human right which could be applied or enshrined. I have no problem with uh, hanging or, or, or um, these things if, if, it, if, it's, if the majority of people are involved in that discussion. So really, it's, it, you, Luke makes the right point. It, freedoms for people to be involved in the discussion and taken seriously are really important. And most of the rights you hear about come from the EU or from these people who are so far disconnected from the real world. In the real world, day to day, most people uh, carry on and they avoid these legal situations. When they get in them, they, they might um, discover their rights, prisoner rights, disabled rights, all these things are a way to negotiate because you call on someone else to recognise your situation. But that's not a real resolution of a real situation. Great start there, Martin. It's certainly provocative. I think uh, very important to note that point, though, about human rights industry, which is more or less what you described, that, that involves a huge range of people, not just lawyers, uh, is becoming a, a major thing. But it's also interesting that you said what we need to do is to get out and protest, because I noticed that even the kill the bill people are saying it's our human rights to protest. And you do think that's not quite the way to win this one, by the way. But anyway, uh, uh, that's going to be an interesting one coming up. So I've got Sadia next. Hi. Um, thank you so much for hosting this event. It's been really, really interesting, really fascinating. Um, hi, Luke. Um, I saw your trigonometry talk, um, I think it was last year, and I actually had a mental breakdown after seeing it. So <laughs> um, I've been working in the women's sector, so uh, domestic abuse and sexual violence sector, for almost a decade. And I'd been kind of quoting some of the stats that you had um, sort of broken down um, and I literally couldn't get out of bed for a couple of weeks after watching your talk and just um, yeah as I say had a bit of a mental breakdown actually um, but one of the things I wanted to ask about I guess it, I think I think there is a place for human rights and I, that's obviously just my opinion so it doesn't really mean anything um, and I, I think that both perpetrator and victim needs to be treated fairly through the criminal justice system. Um, however, um, I do see human rights being weaponized more and more and often, more often by the perpetrators. Like an, a good example of that would be the whole Shamima Begum discussion recently. I heard lots of people talking about her rights to um, a fair trial, her right to be here, and you know, kind of list, listing off her various rights. But in that same demographic, the, the same community that are really advocating for her human rights after murdering their own daughters, and there have been cases in the same area, um, they don't care about the rights of the, their, their own victims or the victims of 
perpetrators within that community. And I just wonder, is there anybody at all, um, like, I mean, like organization or, or body of organizations sort of upholding universal human rights in the, in, in the truest sort of context? Sorry, that was very long winded. <laughs> no, it wasn't, that was really good. Oh, interesting. Although I do hope that we don't have too many nervous breakdowns after tonight. And that's, I'm glad that you've come back for more. Um, I think actually, Luke, if I could, just, I mean, you can answer everyone as you will, but I do think that thing about criminal justice system, what's the difference between, because, you know, I don't want to throw babies out with bathwaters here. I mean, I'm always going on about the rule of law and I, I don't want a victim-centred justice using human rights rhetoric drives me mad but I do want people to be treated fairly under the law and isn't that kind of what some human rights is or not or what uh, anyway you can come back on that so I've got Giovanna so I'm going to take Giovanna Matthew uh, and and James Panton then I'll come back to you Luke and then we'll come out for another round yes uh, look thank you uh, very much so I have apologies but I have not read your book um, I do understand the arguments uh, about uh, how the problem with human rights in foreign policy uh, and the responsibility of state. But I really don't get the key arguments that you're making uh, because, I mean, this, this entire uh, conversation I thought was about a critique of the Human Rights Act. But the examples that you've given are very kind of very specific and they are mainly to do with identity politics. So I don't really understand your argument about what is your criticism I mean, also Claire kind of suggested that that once uh, the Human Rights Act was introduced, then there was a authoritarian measure were, were introduced, and there was more criminal offences or criminal courts. I'm sorry, but I just don't get the basics. Can you just repeat what is your argument of, of why you're so dismissive of the Human Rights Act? I just don't. I'm just sorry, but I just don't get it. That's uh, that's fair enough, and it's always an encouragement to be clearer. Um, uh, and I and I hope I haven't muddled it, but I think you would enjoy reading the book because it's very systematic and it's not yeah, feasible to do read. that tonight. And mm -hmm. it's very short and easy to read. But what 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 I just wanted to clarify what I'd said, which was I was making the point that the Human Rights Act, given great promise, was brought in by Blair that it was going to protect us and our human rights. And it was the very same government that made a much sung and dance of doing that, that then ended up bringing in some of the most draconian legislative program that we'd ever seen in the UK. So I was pointing out that it was useless rather than that, you know, oh, my point that. was, oh, you've got this, Right. this tells us we're going to be protected. And then they just carry on. And this human rights act standing over there, and they boast about it all the time at the very time when they actually took more rights away during that period. And that's not even me having to go at the Labour Party, because God knows it's not like the Tories are liberal. Yeah, yeah. I was just making that point to yeah. clarify my point. Anyway, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, you next, please. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, Luke, thanks for that. Um, I will probably just qualify my question in the way that you apologised for uh, quoting academics. It's a bit of a kind of a theoretical or abstract question, but let, let me ask it nonetheless. What a surprise so, that is from you, Matthew. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, to start, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with your concern about the potentially authoritarian applications of human rights language. Uh, but I'm worried that uh, we, we run the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, getting rid of the framework 
of human rights uh, for the sake of our concern about it being abused. And I think maybe the best way I can put the point is, or the best way I can think of, of putting the point is by touching on your concern about the relation between parliamentary sovereignty and then the power of judicial review. So the concern that you raised was that we, when we create human rights laws or human rights norms, we then empower a judiciary to overturn it. And that in some sense infringes by its logic or by its nature on parliament sovereignty. And I'm, that, and perhaps I'm just speaking from, so I'm South African and we have a constitution which empowers a lot of these things. And I'm just not sure that logic follows. So, I mean, in, in, in kind of three steps, if we have a law that says in the future, when we make further laws, we want to uh, bind ourselves in certain ways or we want to strive after certain goals, we think that's permissible. Uh, if we then have another law which says that when we don't com uh, comply with those commitments, we should have a body of people that can tell us that. Uh, and then in, if we have uh, both of those laws are created by parliament and parliament retains the power to undo both of those laws. And analogous, and I'm wondering where there's the diminution of sovereignty in those circumstances. Because just as individuals, I can make a commitment to get up tomorrow morning or and you know, go for a run and make a commitment to getting healthier and fitter. And when I inevitably fail, I'll feel bad about myself, I'll judge myself, but then I can change my commitments. I can throw away both of those sorts of things. And in no, in no process in autonomously creating those norms and judging myself, have I lost my sovereignty? If I can do that as an individual, why can't we do that as a community? Putting aside concerns about authoritarian applications of that structure of decision-making, if I can do that as an individual, why can't we do that as a community? And what is that process of norm creation other than the creation of human rights? Uh, so that, that's, that's my, so can we, oh, do we not run the risk of going too far in our concerns uh, of authoritarianism? Okay, great. Well, that, no, that was a really useful question. Okay, fi finally, before I come back to Luke, and then I'm gonna come out to so get your questions ready. Uh, can I have James Panton, please? Um, yeah, thank you, Claire, and, and thanks, Luke. I really enjoyed your intro, and, and um, I, I really enjoyed your book when I read it um, quite a while ago. So I, I, I think I share lots of your concerns, but I also, there's kind of a theme in, in what a couple of people have, have said so far that, that I think is quite interesting, and I, I'm kind of, I'm divided on, on what I think about rights, because on, on the one hand, I recognise um, the truth of a huge amount of what you're saying, which is about the extent to which um, contemporary uh, human rights discourse um, serves to empower the state to um, uh, codify uh, almost a, a, an absence of individual agency to uh, act in the world, um, to uh, take control of our circumstances. Um, it therefore empowers the state and unelected um, uh, powers to, to determine what is and isn't acceptable, uh, what can pass and, and what can't pass, what's important, what's not. And I think all of that is, is, is surely right and, and deeply worrying. I, I'm just stuck by, struck by the fact that there is also kind of, um, and I think in part it's an earlier tradition or discourse of rights, where we see rights being used um, in the opposite direction, um, in the direction of carving out a space of freedom uh, from the state, um, in the direction of then saying, look, in order to live in a certain kind of society that we want to live in, there are certain fundamental principles that we want to codify as conditions of our agency, uh, as conditions of our capacity to act. 
I mean, I guess certain features of the, the, the US tradition um, would be one example of that where you think so. So actually there is a, a clarification that, that freedom of speech is fundamental to freedom of conscience first and then freedom of speech and then freedom of political protest all in the First Amendment are a condition of our capacity to act in the world and our condition of our capacity to have the kind of state that we want. And, and they also make it possible, by the way, when we don't have the kind of state that we want as a matter of legal principle. And if law doesn't protect us as a matter of moral principle to take on an oppressive state. I mean, I, I don't want to kind of sugarcoat it too much because there's also quite an anti-democratic um, uh, tradition and, and, and kind of focus in that early US tradition of, of rights. But I guess I'm just wondering if you think there's anything um, positive or possible in, in reclaiming the discourse of rights as political things. I, I was really struck by the first speaker's notion that rights are things or real rights are things that you discover when people are acting, when people are doing things not things that you discover as, as, as kind of um, legal entities or abstract entities. And I'm wondering if there's something positive to be said for reclaiming that narrative of what rights are, of rights as expressions of our dignity, expressions of our capacity to act, and therefore as things that we might still want to fight for, as a way of turning the narrative away from this, this, this kind of passive account, rather than writing off the entire discussion of rights. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I think, which is why I'm asking what you think. No, no, great. That's again, Luke, it's far too much. Just pick up a few things there that you can uh, answer, if you will, please. Okay, so just to respond to James's question, I can say that I've oscillated in precisely the same way. And in fact, gave a talk on this book in the early days following its publication, where I, I, I made the argument that we need to reclaim the idea of human rights and reclaim the idea um, you know as and I think Martin you've summarized it perfectly I think that's the idea of and it's it's an idea that's reflected uh, in the work of Hannah Arendt who's explored in the book as well the idea that rights can only really exist as part of your lived community and the lines that we establish with the state and the lines that we draw between the state and ourselves are really matters that we live and we uh, live with one another and i think martin's point that you know people live in a way which is entirely separate to law across most of the country i think is is absolutely well one is certainly true but also reflects something important about freedom which is that uh the the, the rights that we i suppose the question is how do we understand the relations that exist with people when they, they live freely. Do we call them rights? Do we call them freedoms? I suppose the problem that we have in reclaiming the discourse of human rights is, is that that idea firstly has a very specific um, political and historical history, which may be very difficult to reclaim. And two, it, it plays a role in the contemporary world, which may make reclaiming it extremely difficult. And so what the, the book argues, and, and I suppose that what the book argues is that it at least poses the question as to how we might, if not reclaim the discourse of rights, because I think that the discourse of rights, uh, when you look at the sort of intellectual history, I don't need to tell people in this room that, but you know, it, that those, that the arguments around rights do exist in their context. So Thomas Paine is writing about the rights of man in, you know, in, in a particular engagement and you know the conflict that arises with Edmund Burke 
and the, the nature of the, the nature of rights as they argue about them. Obviously, the rights that we're talking about today have to be conceived of in a new way. I don't think um, it, it can be it can be difficult to try and use the ideas of the past in a contemporary context and to rely too heavily on the ideas of the past in a contemporary context, especially when those ideas have become so hostage to other forces and other agendas. But I'm open to the possibility that we at least attempt to, what I think I argue in the book is that we need to refocus our attention on the real problem, which is that, um, and, I'm, and Martin's probably um, correcting me on this, but that we have a problem with the culture of freedom in this country, which will not be fixed by um, the language or ideas of the past, and that we need a new approach to this question, which doesn't necessarily rely on uh, either the, the, the language of human rights or the rhetoric that, that support human rights in the contemporary context. That's a very wordy um, answer. I hope it, it gets somewhere. But I, I share your concern, James, about throw, throwing babies out with bathwaters. And that brings to the South African question and the relationship with parliamentary sovereignty. I think it is a question of, so I, I think uh, I've looked very, very briefly at the situation in South Africa and I have uh, to, such an, to such little extent that I have very little knowledge of uh, how the South African constitution interacts with the parliament there. My concern really is that um, the, the, the a constitution pertains or purports, sorry, purports to uh, set down a set of legal principles which um, are unchanging and cannot be therefore um, subject to um, democratic intervention. And I think the point that Martin raises is, is an interesting one in that context. You know, to what extent are things permissible because the demos decides that they are right? I think that's an interesting question. And my concern about a constitution would be precisely on questions of freedom that we would shut that that possibility of intervention down and if you're going to shut the possibility of intervention down you need to be sure why you're doing it um, and I'm not and I'm not at the moment convinced that on matters of for example free speech um, it's appropriate to take that question out of the hands of the demos in, in such a way that the constitution that, that a written constitution might threaten to do I'm willing to be you know as as the specific technical question on parliamentary sovereignty is a complex one, um, but I think my fundamental concern is about the ability of the demos to intervene on fundamental political questions. And I think in, in both South Africa and, and the United States, we've seen how the judiciary can play a, um, I would argue, a negative role in, in preventing uh, the law properly reflecting uh, dem the democratic will. On criminal, uh, should I talk about criminal justice and Shimon Begum? Well, can I can I just maybe I can kind of just put that criminal justice thing back at you a minute because I what I wanted to say was, you know, as I hear you talking about that, I immediately think you know it's always handy in America when you can kind of go the First Amendment. <laughs> you know, we haven't kind of well, I feel like we haven't got anything written down, so you grab your kind of Article Ten even though it's got loads of exemptions and it doesn't work. You know, you kind of want someone somewhere to say this is a good thing, free speech, because it, it, right? Now, going to the criminal law, the reason I'm saying that is because there are times when you think, you talk about the rule, one talks about the rule of law, and I wish it would stop being politicised and interfered with by parliamentary intervention. I mean, I, it drives me mad that the right to silence can just be taken away like that. It drives me mad that 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 that, that some of the kind of, rule of law things that I want a bit fixed 
innocent until proven guilty, are being chipped away at by legislators, not necessarily by lawyers, but by legislators. So I can see the temptation. I, and, and that was all I was saying. The rule of law is not the same as discarding human rights laws, but what I, yeah, something, something. Something, something, I've, I've abandoned it. And I, I, just any reflection you've got, you know, I, I hope you can see what I'm trying to get at. Oh no, you've mute. You're muted, yeah, Ella. You're, you're unmuted now, right? Okay, I muted fine. myself, and then I needed your permission to unmute. Oh, I see. Thank you for granting it. <laughs> so, on criminal justice, I mean, I share your frustration. Um, the rights of defendants is a really interesting question, and it's you know it's what I, one I'm preoccupied with. Um, I suppose the one thing to say is that, you know, the presumption of innocence doesn't not exist. You know, it does, it is there as a principle in our justice system. It's a good example of a system that exists notwithstanding actually being contained anywhere in law. And uh, it's something that should and does often govern the way that we uh, make law. And there are the, the examples in history that you've cited, you know, the Tory assault on the right to silence. Um, it's a problem with our political culture that that wasn't a bigger deal at the time. You know, it was the problem, but the problem was that the both sides of the uh, bench, both Tory and Labour at that time, were coalescing around the need to restrict the rights of defendants. You know, Jack Straw talking about the defendants' rights lobby. Um, most of um, Tony Blair's uh, early actions as, as Home Secretary was were were explicitly undermining of the rights of defendants. And, and the, the, the problem was that then Labour won a stonking majority and, and many people say that that was thanks to that move. And so that's sort of um, on, on us in a sense, you know, so we have to then think very carefully about how we put that case to the public and we have to win those arguments. And it's actually incredibly difficult to say why something as peculiar and arcane as the right to silence is um, is worth is worth defending, but it has to be on us to do it. It can't be um, because the, it, it's not something that, uh, that the more that you introduce it into law, the more that the control over that question passes to passes to judges, and then we lose control of it forever because you can't possibly, you know, it tends to be once once a power is in statute law and and subject to judicial decision making, that tends to settle the picture at least until Parliament intervenes again. Um, so yeah, so but I think that the, the other important distinction we need to draw is between human rights and civil liberties. That those are two different things. And civil liberties were traditionally, uh, you know, those the limits on the powers of the state. And and the, the idea that uh, civil liberty, you know, the idea that certain things about individuals should not be interfered with. The state should not extend their power beyond a certain point. Uh, human rights were 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 something slightly different and changed their meaning at different times. But I think if we can understand that difference, we could perhaps um, argue that we, we might stand up for civil liberties as a way of reclaiming something of the language of rights, because civil liberties does imply that space where the law isn't, you know, it, it implies that space where the law has no control. And it sounds like um, people in the Midlands have lots of civil liberties because they have no interaction with with uh, uh, the state or their powers, which is, to my mind, the more of that, the better. Okay, great. 
Um, so what's going to happen now is that Ella's going to speak. And she can't put her hand up because she's behind the scenes. Um, I can see that Martin wants to speak. And I will take you again, Martin. But I do want to encourage people who haven't spoken and who are not from the West Midlands to also speak. Um, you are allowed. But I, I mean, I saw somebody briefly, uh, Daryl Bickers, uh, Lickett's name cropped up. And there was also somebody who, before we came, said that she wanted to talk about um, what, what Luke thought about hate crime, where that fitted in, uh, how we could oppose hate crime legislation, you know, and, 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 you know, there's a kind of general concern about all of the different ways that we're being attacked at the moment in terms of our liberties. And I think hate crime is a good example of, of that. And it's often used to defend, it's often brought in as a way of defending people's human rights. So that's that's kind of the, the, the connection. But anyway, put your hands up everyone, Ella Whelan. Thanks Claire and thanks Luke. Actually Luke, the, the thing I wanted to sort of ask Al, um, or mention to you links to what you were talking about in relationship to the difference between human rights and civil liberties. Because one of the most frustrating things um, in the world of uh, pro-choice activism and discussion about abortion is the use of human rights by pro-choice um, campaigners as a means of arguing for more liberal abortion law. But what's happened is because of the reliance on human rights in this kind of very lazy way, as opposed to uh, civil liberties, bodily autonomy, individual freedom, however you want to put it, what's happened is there's become this um, really quite painful and tangled conflict between lots of different people claiming their human rights. So you've got the kind of anti-choice pro-life people um, claiming the human rights of the unborn. You've now got a layer of um, disabled rights activists claiming, claiming that their human rights are being impinged on by the decision of a woman to abort after a scan showing Down syndrome or something like that. You've got a certain layer of feminists arguing that we that, that what about the human rights of women when it comes to sex selective abortion? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And what you have is this: it, it, you're not no longer talking about abortion anymore. You're talking about human rights. And the reason why it's so difficult is because really what you're saying when you are arguing for a woman's liberty to make a decision about her body is that you're not saying um, you're not talking about rights. You're saying that there's a political decision being made to say that one that we have greater interest in the freedom of one person over over another because there as uh, I mean Anne Frady's book on abortion is really great on this and outlining that there is a conflict of interest between what we consider to be a human in the unborn and and the human being of the living woman a citizen in society and so you're making a political decision on the basis of what freedom is best is is most important the most important one is the woman and so rights just kind of complicate it. But there's, I don't really know what my question to you is, but it's that, um, you know, I, I feel like there's a kind of really, it, it links to your identity politics point that there's this kind of really lazy reliance on rights, um, often by sort of young activists who just kind of will use any kind of language to get by, which is, you know, perhaps unfair, but that's what happens. But it, you end up then losing what is actually the central point of it, which is this very difficult and controversial point that it's politics and it's a political argument that some people might disagree with rather than this just kind of flattening out universal wishy-washy version of we all should just be nice to each other. Because in the end, you know, I don't, it's, it sounds harsh, but you end up saying, well, if we don't care if the disabled rights activist gets upset by the decision of the other woman, because that's not where the political point lies. Um, so it, 
I mean, what did you think about that? And this is really fascinating. I've got a very, very simple question, really, I suppose. But it seems to me the, the issues of rights is all, always has a kind of subjective element. So it's always attached to a person. Whereas if you have a universal principle, it's much more of a kind of objective thing rather than a kind of subjective thing. Um, so, uh, and having that sort of attached to a subject element of it means that there'll always be, as kind of Ella was um, explaining, there'll always be a kind of conflict between one person's human right against another, where there might be a conflict of rights, basically. But what, um, what I think, where I think it becomes incredibly difficult is so if you were to argue that you know a universal principle of free speech, it, you know that doesn't conflict because we all have that universal principle. But if you start to have kind of um, use the language of human rights or you you know the right to be offended, then counteracts with the right to um, you know the preacher in London, for instance, the Christian preacher who was exercising his free speech to to quote the Bible, offended passers-by because there was homophobic slurs or whatever. So then you suddenly have a conflict. So you need an arbiter and arbiter and you always sort of end up with the the state as the arbiter, as you, you said, Luke. But well, I suppose um, another area of concern, um, so I wondered if that's my, you know, my take is right, but you know, when you look at the hate crime bill in Scotland, um, you mentioned about uh, human rights sort of becoming very conjoined with identity politics, where you see in the hate crime bill in Scotland, um, you almost see enshrined in law those identities that we might want to, um, we may want to disagree about identities or we might not even think a person's demographic identity is the most important thing about them but once you have that combination of kind of a legalistic definition of an identity politics definition then surely we get into very dangerous um, territory where suddenly you do have the state with the overarching power to kind of enforce identity politics so I just wondered if you could kind of speak to that a little bit please. Uh, thanks, Mo. Um, I've now got uh, uh, Breege here, please. Hey, um, one of the things I do is I, I keep an eye on the um, anti-circumcision movement uh, for both male and female. And the um, argument that comes up regularly is that uh, one of the best ways to uh, address the anti-FGM movement and, and, and what they call male genital mutilation as well, is to say that this uh, none should happen until and when a child can give consent and that it's undermining of their human rights if it's done uh, without their consent. So a question is, do children have human rights in the sense of we understand adults have human rights because to me patently children can't give consent until they become um, of the age when they understand things um, so on one level it seems very sensible that decisions are postponed until people can consent to them but then is that not undermining the uh, role that parents play in making decisions about how they bring up their children uh, thanks, Bridget. That, that's come up quite a bit, actually, with the masks in classrooms, uh, where people have said this is an attack on children's human rights. And it's like, who's human, you know, can, is it the parents' rights that are attacked there or the children or what is it? So I've got uh, Daryl Bickler, please. I 
have joined a new political party, and I don't want to sort of necessarily sort of pitch for them because it's it's very much a blank canvas in this regard. So this is an extension because uh, we need uh, something uh, to channel our ideas into, uh, and it's an empty vessel regarding human rights at the moment. Uh, sorry, civil liberties and human rights, I should say. Um, at the moment, save for its excellent principles. And this is the Freedom Alliance Party that I'm standing for in Leeds and in Wales today. Now, um, I don't expect to do that well, but it's all going to be work in progress. The, the organisation was started purely as an anti-lockdown, uh, no curfews, no lockdown um, ticket. Now, uh, it's going to grow, because, it, and it's not that it's going to be partisan in any way, it's just a people's party for anybody to get involved. It's not really about politicians, it's about agency, it's about medical autonomy. And there's an invitation here to, to Luke and anybody else, if, if they want to actually put something down that would be part of a manifesto, I will definitely be pushing that and pushing that forward because I fully agree with this distinction between civil liberties and human rights. I totally get the idea that they're a stick to beat us with and that they limit uh, our freedoms. And uh, yet, as you've recognized yourself, civil liberties, we can't just dispense with those because they are our, our operation, uh, area of operation without, without some uh, proper recognition of, of real free speech and the rights of dependence, then we're finished. And if we had some decent civil liberties, uh, perhaps we'd have some kind of standpoint to counter these ongoing lockdowns, which are, I think it could, it, they might even ramp up the ante yet, we, we don't know. But uh, certainly we've proved over the last year that we are in desperate trouble. And it's almost like the gloves are off now. You know, niche conversations about our favorite subjects really need to be off the table until we get this sorted out because you know people sort of come to me want to talk about starting cannabis social clubs and god knows what at the moment nothing like that seems to matter until we have these basic liberties so really what i'm putting on the table is if 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 if, if this kind of i call it an organization i know it's not just one organization it's a lot of people here mm -hmm. who don't have a political voice and if luke wants to do it if we can put you know, just a three or four page document together about, you know, the civil liberties that we really want to identify, the human rights that we want to avoid, you know, that we could have a, a, a party uh, with that um, in place. And so I'll, I'll finish the complete. Thanks very much for that opportunity. Thank you. Nice to uh, nice, have nice, a bit of a political advert for a new party at the end of voting day. So it's all all right. Uh, although you can still rush out and vote, I suppose. Um, but thank you, Daryl. That is an, uh, interesting to hear of your the initiative there. Um, I'm going to take Martin, but um, after Martin, if there's any last people who want to speak, you don't have to be a lawyer or, 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 or have studied jurisprudence or know anything about human rights at all, but some of these things are fairly familiar. So if there's any questions that you've got, just basic questions like, what did you mean? Ask now. So after Martin, I've got Sadia, and then I'll see if there's any last couple of people, and then I'll get Luke to come in and finish. Uh, Martin, back to you. Thank you, you Claire. Great points made in the discussion, really great points. Last points from Daryl, the Welsh crew, full respect from West Midlands crew. I'll make two points. You can't codify freedom. When you codify freedom, you, you take freedom away. I'll give you an example. We organised a rave two weeks ago in Birmingham, underground. No one's troubled by it. Everyone's loving it. Lo locals are in, causing no trouble. Please come down with all their restrictions. We still carry on. So the, the point I'm making is that you can't codify a freedom. Law always comes after the effects. I've worked in criminal law for 25 years. I don't see much justice or th these certain things. 
The point is that people bring freedom. Laws and books don't bring freedom. And these little codes, either you live freedom or you live by a certain code or you demand a code. In, in my whole experience, I raise sons, I have grandsons, I, I raise them in a tradition of freedom. If you want to do something, do it. S speak what you want to speak, associate what you want to associate and deal with the restrictions upon that because the truth is you can't codify it. One last point, Claire, you're in the House of Lords and respect to you for being there. But again, any law they discuss is contingent, always contingent on public disorder, on, on offending people, on being Islamic phobic, on being anti, you know, all, all these restrictions. You're from an Irish background, the same as me. The, the restrictions, you have, to, you have to challenge them and you have to understand that ordinary people don't really have much concern with law until they stop and searching you or restricting you. And that's when you entangle it. So there's a big disconnect here between a, a, a kind of a legal discussion professional discussion and what's happening in the real world ordinary people go about our lives and we have a sense of community of responsibility of being respectful to each other we resolve issues and this whole this whole kind of um, seeking to write things down and codify things law always comes after the event the last thing i'll leave you with when i was in the 80s young my dad brought me to a pub in liverpool and watched something called the paddy wagon rolling with the local police who were on training, round up all the Irish coming out the pub, and that was called police training. And he said to me, son, the law always comes afterwards. The fighting goes first, they sort things out first, the police charge you with disorder, we charge them with, or we accuse they beat us up, and we sort out in the morning. And that's a real lesson that stuck with me in all my legal career, and I have a PhD in jurisprudence, because real life comes first, and laws come second. And you can't, you can't motivate ordinary people from a law book and you don't get justice from a stone. Uh, thanks, Martin. I, I, I'm going to come back and argue against you in a minute, but I'll take Sadia and Alex first and then me, then Luke. Uh, Sadia. Thank you. Um, I just kind of um, off the back of, um, I think, is it Manly? Um, Manly's point. I think it, there's this kind of really romantic notion that, you know, um, the community can just be left to itself and it's all going to be free and lovely and wonderful and i also know communities that can be really really oppressive so there is a space for the state to kind of intervene the reason i'm alive and i survived living in the community that i grew up in is because of the british legal system it allowed me to survive it allowed me to kind of get through life had i been raised in pakistan I would definitely be dead. There's no doubt about it. So there's this complex terrain to kind of navigate because communities, although yes, they have this loveliness to offer of belonging and safety and security, they can also become really oppressive as well. And I just, just listening to the whole discussion today, time and again, you know, mills on liberty kind of wearing through my mind that kind of boundary of, um, where the individual, the community and the state sort of where, where those lines are and where they might uh, merge and sort of, um, it, that's, that's a complex kind of ever shifting um, discussions. We can't, uh, we can't kind of pretend that that's static and the community is just gonna be wonderful if it's just left to itself. I don't think that's realistic. That's fair. Alex, uh, Alex, please. Hi. Um... Yeah, thanks uh, for the for the talk. It's been really, really interesting. Loads and loads of interesting points. I'm very glad to hear that Martin is raving. That really lifted my heart. Um, I suppose my um, 
I, I feel like there's a there's a sort of a, a dichotomy between um, the idea of having codified rights and almost perceived natural rights and particularly uh, again agree with Daryl how can you talk about anything but the the restrictions that we've been under and are and continue to be under because they are so um, excessive and extensive in my view um, and and thinking about for, for instance large groups of people that I know continue and, and have completely disregarded the laws are religious groups and I think part of the reason they felt able to do that was because there was a clear natural right that they were aware aware of that worshiping god and communing communing with their faith groups was an obvious natural right and and trumped anything that the government could produce and in in essence that that is sort of a a written law it just happens to come in the form of a, of a holy book um, but equally, what Martin is seems to be saying was was that essentially your right comes from how you act and nothing needs to be written down. You don't need a constitution or a, a, a holy book or anything. I'm just curious from Luke's perspective, assuming that you think there is some value in civil liberty, which I imagine from what you've said you do, um, how, how best society should actually... Um, act out those those civil liberties and those rights uh, uh thanks very much alex I, um i'm going to just come back on a few things i think alex you raised some really interesting things i mean actually all the questions have been really interesting i don't i hate people who appreciate that one of the nice things about tonight is I'm, I'm more confused than i was at the start but um i think that in a good way because it's actually given a lot to think about but a couple of things that i wanted to say i mean i one of the things that strikes me just um just kind of slightly coming back on what um martin said but just sort of generally is that you know people um uh, can't just uh, behave as they want because at the moment they'll be locked up fined criminalized there's a whole range of kind of ways that you can't just do that but i think sadia also made a good point which is you also do want some respect for the law now, you, you, so you've got two things. I can say there's a load of laws I don't respect, but it's not that I want everybody to say, well, I don't care whether you call it your property or not, I'm taking it anyway. Or I don't care whether you say it's against the law to slap you across the face, I'm going to slap you anyway. So, you know, th those are those are things that ordinary people say, Martin. It's not just like, no, ordinary people don't just kind of go raving and, and, and kind of have no, there's tensions here and they're not quite sure where they stand in relation to it. And I And I think that, I actually don't think that it's it, that that we can codify what freedom is in the way that you've really explained very well, Martin and I, and, I, and Luke and lots of people have spoken. But I also think that it's important that we can thrash out ideas, and to a certain extent, that's codification because that's coming up with the philosophy and the ideas behind freedom. And I I asked the question earlier on, which nobody responded to, which is the shocking bit for me, is that. Or, or the, the, the lesson that I've learned, both in relation to anti-terrorism legislation, but also in relation to um, what's happened in, to, in terms of the pandemic, is that you can come along and you can take a much taken for granted thing like freedom or free speech or civil liberties. And if you then tell people that their safety is at risk, then you can get away with getting rid of a lot of those things. I remember David Blunkett saying, 
uh, you know, laughing at me in a debate that I did with him many years ago when he was in when he was a Home Secretary, and he said, "Oh, you know, Claire, you and your civil liberties—it's a luxury for those people who don't fear crime, don't fear, you know, being blown up and all the rest of it—that you can wander around with that kind of, you know, always kind of like me the." you know, civil liberties was like a luxury. And you've seen it, people say now, they say, you can go about free speech, but people are dying of COVID. You can go about freedom to, to move, but you know, I don't want people without masks breathing all over my elderly, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know that kind of argument. So that would mean that our attachment to freedom is only shallow. And that's one of the reasons why I think these things are important. Just finally on the House of Lords, I mean, I've learned quite a lot about the House of Lords from reading Luke's book, so you can tell that I don't know much about it. I haven't only been there six months. But I can assure you that freedom is not safe in their hands and the law lords are scarier than anyone. But it's also uh, made me realise that people think that politics is legislation. And that has been a great eye-opener because I, at that level... I've realised that I've got a terrible responsibility that I have to vote for things which I feel I've got no entitlement to. Um, and I want people to understand the law better. That's one of the things I actually want to open up what this legislation is like and how they decide it, because they use the words human rights all the time to justify the most incredible liberalism and draconianism. And if my contribution is, will be quite simply to tell people what's going on. That's it fairly modest but that's the least I can do while I'm there um, okay so um, uh, there's loads more to talk about that's why we have things like the battle of ideas you can all come along um, and uh, uh, Luke can we hear from you your final thoughts please just some very responding very briefly to some of those points um, someone near the start of those questions mentioned the, the idea of offensiveness and vulnerability and you certainly see that in the new police bill which we haven't talked too much about which has now been kicked off until later in the year but it's quite clear that at the center of that is a very uh, the, the idea that people need protection from demonstrations you know the idea is that uh, people are capable of being very seriously disturbed or uh, harassed or uh, upset by the presence of a protest and thereby the police are given justification to intervene against it so at the heart of this new police bill is a notion of vulnerability and, and offence taking, which has been at the heart of antisocial behaviour law for a very long time, uh, and formed. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is that when you assume people are vulnerable in the way that you talked about, Claire, when you assume people need protecting, then almost anything can be justified. And I think we've seen that in the police bill in relation to protests. Um, someone asked, "Human are human rights always used to protect criminals? Is that overblown?" The reality is that the I think the right wing uh, critique on this is simply wrong. I don't think that that many uh, deportations are actually prevented on human rights grounds if you look at the numbers. But um, that's the reality. The reality is that an awful lot of claims are brought, but very few of them are successful. But that but that shows that human the human rights industry that Martin talked about a little bit uh, is very much alive and well, and it's very easy to bring a human rights claim, and it does lead to at least some um, uh, holdups and, and, and delay. Uh, so that's the, that's the reality of the system, I suppose. Um, on the issues surrounding um, identities and protected characteristics, uh, I think the left had a bit of a shock recently when uh, a nationalist successfully argued that, an English nationalist successfully argued that his English nationalism was, was a protected characteristic uh, and was uh, successful in his claim uh, to, to, to have compensation 
for being uh, sacked when he successfully argued that he uh, it was a complicated case. But in essence, almost anything can. There, there is a fixed set of protected characteristics which people could now rely upon to go to law if they, you know, if if they find that they've been excluded or, or discriminated against. And that list is growing all the time, and you'll inevitably you might well lose control of that list and then suddenly you have people on the list who you might think are less deserving and that's um a part and parcel of uh the the rights discourse and i think uh, just to finish on on ella's point about um abortion so i think it goes to the real heart of of, of why why it's so important to consider the impact that rights discussions are having in contemporary terms i think what we're seeing is uh different interest groups, different identity groups, asserting themselves through the law in a way that can be very destructive for wider society. Uh, we're seeing that very clearly in the context of gender. You've given an example, Ella, how it's uh, affecting the discussion around abortion. But I really think this is just going to get worse. And I think more of our social problems, because they will be conceived of solely in terms of people's individuality, their identity, uh, and their, their identity claims, more and more social problems will become uh, orientated around making around respecting people's claims on identity. And I think that creates real social problems uh, uh, and arguably more social conflict as well. Uh, thank you so much, Luca. That was a really interesting, I mean, just fascinating discussion. And I think it's just a taster for the book. And um, I, I really would urge people to buy the book. Um, I, I have read it twice and I, I think there's just loads of fantastic, uh, useful arguments in here that you can dwell on. So even though I was saying the world has changed, actually the arguments around this book are perfect for the world that we've moved into. And actually I find it a, a, a great read. So do get a copy and um, also just don't forget to get your, um, um, your Letters on Liberty. I've got um, taking conscience seriously. Um, uh, freedom is no is is no illusion. Uh, there's all sorts of discussions here, but do order those um, and so on. Join the Academy of Ideas. Get the newsletter. And um, our next event, just to show you that we have a varied program, is Does Classical Music Still Matter, which is on Wednesday, the 12th of May at 7 p.m by the Academy of Ideas, Arts and Society Forum. I'd really urge you to come along to that. And of course, do buy your tickets now for July the 17th, Battle of Ideas at Buckingham University. So thanks a lot. Can we unmute everyone, Ella, so that everyone can clap um, at uh, Luke? Thank you.